God alone is the only free cause. Without God, no thing can be or be understood. It cannot be said that God loves mankind. There can be in him no love of something, since all form only one thing, which is God himself. I think that he seeded the Enlightenment and all of the good things that followed from the European Enlightenment. Well, he is very modern. The last of the medievals and the first of the moderns. Spinoza is of the level of, say, uh, an Aristotle or a Kant or a Descartes. Those are philosophers that can really give you work for a lifetime. How much do I love this noble man, more than I could say with words. Albert Einstein. Like Albert Einstein, I love Spinoza. I can't say I understand him, although I've been reading his work for more than 40 years. I admire the simple way he lived his life, although I can in no way emulate it. How can I persuade you to love him as well? To see that Spinoza, a man of the 17th century, is the philosopher for our time, and that the era in which he lived had some similarities to our own. What proofs and demonstrations can I offer to convince you? Luckily, I am not alone in this love for the philosopher, and I have found people from many different backgrounds to help me in this task. To begin at the beginning, Baruch, the name means blessed in Hebrew, Baruch Spinoza was born in Amsterdam in 1632. He was the son of a Jewish family that in the previous 150 years had been expelled from Spain, then Portugal, and finally France. They had only recently arrived in the more tolerant Netherlands, this I knew already, but to learn more I met Professor Pete Steenbachers of Erasmus University by a small bronze statue of the philosopher outside Amsterdam's town hall. The modern city was all around us, but Steenbachers began by explaining that when the Spinoza family arrived, this was the edge of town where an influx of religious refugees, including Jews, settled, and that the Spinoza house was quite close by. It started as a village in the, in the 16th century and it, it was flooded by immigrants from Antwerp and, and from, from everywhere. Jewish immigrants or all uh, kinds? All kinds. Uh, uh, Calvinist immigrants, many of them Calvinists from Antwerp. And after, at a certain moment they decided to, to build houses on this plot here. It was more or less at the outskirts of town then. And this was where Spinoza's parents lived and where he was born in 1632. Yeah. Were they wealthy? They were not poor. Um, Spinoza's father was a well-respected member of the Jewish community who paid his dues to the community and who had in, um, responsible offices within the community. And so probably he, he must have had some, some standing. Some, uh, Baruch Spinoza's father, Miguel, imported fruit from the Mediterranean. And after an older brother died, the teenage Baruch left formal Jewish education behind and joined his father in the business. There are no signs that he didn't like being a merchant. There's no sign that he actually wanted to get away from the business, but then it turned out to be bankrupt after he had inherited it. Steenbachers guided me from the reputed site of Spinoza's house, a hundred yards along a canal to Jodenbriestrat, Jewish Broad Street, towards one of Amsterdam's top tourist attractions, 
Rembrandt's house. They lived in the same area at the same time? Yes, they did. They did. Of course, it is far too tempting to think that they, they must have met, and they certainly must have, you know, they might have come across each other on the marketplace or in the baker shop or whatever. Of course, many people think that the connections must have gone further because Rembrandt actually did look for Jewish people to stand for his biblical paintings. People have been looking for likenesses of Spinoza and Rembrandt's paintings without success. Although there is speculation that the young philosopher was the model for David in Rembrandt's painting titled Saul and David. We walk down Judenbreestraat and into one of the great buildings of Jewish Europe, Amsterdam's Portuguese synagogue, the Snoga. It is an impressive place. It really is. Yeah. It really is. The brown brick building is a place of tradition. Literally, it still has no electricity or heating. Light pours through the massive, unadorned windows. The Snoga is a testimony to the wealth of Amsterdam's Sephardic Jewish community. After 150 years of insecurity and expulsions from the Iberian Peninsula, years in which many had been forced to convert to Catholicism, they had set down roots and thrived. More than that, in this city and country of tolerance, they had been allowed to return to Jewish practice. And Steenbachers points out, Jewish practice is the point of departure for Spinoza's philosophy. It does play an important part. You can see that his being acquainted with uh, the Jewish Bible, with Jewish ceremony and so on, uh, shaped his thought. And he always remained fascinated by that whole complex of the Jewish tradition. He was also very critical of it. We don't know to what extent Spinoza himself, for example, already was one of those uh, annoying little pupils who always had the next question ready, even one question too far, you know. Spinoza was taught by the leading rabbis of the city, Manasseh ben Israel and Saul Mortera, but Amsterdam was full of free-thinking Christian dissidents as well. Many were in business, and Spinoza had contact with them. Soon he was questioning his teachers and his community's belief that the Torah, the five books of Moses, and the rest of the Old Testament were somehow divine, that the words originate with a deity who is rather like us, and who watches over and interacts with humanity. Spinoza was aware that as long as people believed that this was literally the word of God, once they found out that it was historically determined and that it was corrupted, the text was corrupted, they would throw it away as completely worthless. And his idea was that although it is historically transmitted, although it is a human product, it still contains a moral message that is worth embracing. That the Bible is not divinely revealed and is a set of wisdom teachings may seem to make sense today. But in the middle of the 17th century, that was a great leap forward. It was also heresy. He is so radically outside of his time. I, you know, I think he's radical even for today. I think we're still trying to catch up uh, to Spinoza. Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, professor of philosophy at New York University and author of Betraying Spinoza, the renegade Jew who gave us modernity. I think the fact that he was a Jew, that he grew up in a community of refugees from the Iberian Inquisition had something to do with his radicalism, that he felt the sort of 
tragic situation of the Jews. He grew up being surrounded with that tragic situation. And he uses Cartesian rationalism to think his way outside of these problems, thereby becoming a real radical, such a radical that he's, as you well know, he's put into a harem, into what we call excommunication by his Jewish community. The Esnoga was built during Spinoza's lifetime, but he never set foot inside. In the summer of 1656, 23-year-old Baruch Spinoza, for reasons that remain unclear, was put in cherem, excommunicated by the Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam. By the decree of the angels and by the command of the holy men, we excommunicate, expel, curse, and damn Baruch de Espinosa. Cursed be he by day, and cursed be he by night. Cursed be he when he lies down, and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out, and cursed be he when he comes in. The Elders of Amsterdam's Talmud Torah, 27th of July, 1656. Like much else about his life, there are not many specifics available to explain why he was expelled. For some, in what remains of Amsterdam's Jewish community, the excommunication was just. I have been reading Spinoza's book, but I don't know why he's so famous. Pinchas Toledano, chief rabbi of Amsterdam's Portuguese Jewish community. Spinoza didn't care one way or the other. He probably laughed at the cherem. He probably laughed even at the rabbis who imposed it. I mean, you can see from his argument, he says that there is no God, except in, in a philosophical way, which I don't even know what he meant. He says also that the law of Moses is no longer divine. When a person is dead, is dead. There is no more the, the so-called immortality of the soul. There is no life after death. So you can see why, in fact, Rabbi Saul Mortera had no choice but to put this fellow on harem so that the rest of the community will not follow suit. Had I been at that time with Rabbi Saul Mortera, I would be the first one to put him in harem. To be cast out in this way was dangerous. The modern idea of the individual making his own way in the world did not exist yet. In the 17th century, the community was your source of protection and security. This was doubly true for Jews, who at best were merely tolerated wherever they were. Excommunication was a powerful tool of coercion for maintaining community cohesion. However, Spinoza told a friend, the harem for him was a moment of liberation. They do not force me to do anything that I would not have done of my own accord if I did not dread scandal. But since they want it that way, I enter gladly on the path this opened to me, with the consolation that my departure will be more innocent than was the exodus of the early Hebrews from Egypt. Baruch became Benedict, the Latin word for blessed. He lived for a time in a Mennonite community near Amsterdam, then after a few years found his way to Rendsburg, a village near the University of Leiden. At that moment in history, the Dutch Republic was the wealthiest country in the world. All around it, Europe was tearing itself apart with wars, all of which had a religious component. The Thirty Years' War, the English Civil War, and the never-ending clashes between France and Spain. The Netherlands was not immune to religious and political tension. 
the Royalist House of Orange and the Calvinist clergy were on one side, Republicans on the other. But under the rule of Republican Johann de Witt, balance was maintained, and this led to success in international trade, which led to wealth, and wealth led to stability and created a space for intellectual achievement, the Dutch Golden Age. Leiden's university was one of the centers of European intellectual life, in part because Spinoza lived nearby. Even though he had yet to publish a word, Spinoza was internationally renowned, according to Pete Steenbockers. Apparently the word spread rapidly that there was something special going on in Rheinsburg or in Amsterdam earlier, and then that there was a philosopher working on something that was going to be completely new and revolutionary. A book published by a friend of Spinoza's said, Descartes changed the way we look at the world, but now there is someone here who is working on Descartes' philosophy and you haven't seen anything yet. Before he had published a single word, Spinoza had been befriended by Sir Henry Oldenburg, secretary of Britain's recently formed Royal Society, the first modern scientific society. Through Oldenburg, intellectual social networker supreme, Spinoza's name and his ideas were spread all over Europe. Leading intellectuals visiting the University of Leiden made a pilgrimage to the cottage in Rendsburg to meet the philosopher. <coughs> Professor Steenbockers took me to the Spinoza house in Rendsburg. So what is in this bookcase? Well, this is the reconstructed library that we know Spinoza owned when he died. A reconstruction of it. The books themselves have been sold after his death. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an auction of all his possessions to pay for the uh, debts that he left, pay for the costs of his burial and so on. Spinoza lived a quiet, ascetic life and turned his back on riches. He was granted a handsome annuity by a wealthy patron. No thanks, he said, and refused it. The University of Heidelberg offered him an endowed chair in philosophy then I would be beholden to the Elector Palatine and not entirely free to philosophize as I wish, he explained, and turned it down. Steenbockers took me into an adjacent room to show me how the philosopher earned a living, as a lens grinder. So I'm looking at this machine, I thought it was some kind of perpetual motion machine, but it's not. Yeah. This is... This is where you grind lenses. So uh -huh. turn, I'm not, I'm supposed to not, I'm, I think I'm not supposed Don't to touch it. <laughs> but... Um, if you turn this, you can turn. You, this will go around. You put some sand or something in it, and so then it's, it's basically it's it's one large wheel. Yes. Um, that goes clockwise, it seems, and it turns a, a rope belt, and then you drop sand onto a plate on this mm -hmm. other part of the contraption. Mm -hmm. And does this wheel turn as well? It does, yes. It's, right. it's moved by... So it's two, two wheels. Turning the wheel by hand, he ground lenses for scientific instruments. He made the telescope lenses for Christian Huygens, the outstanding astronomer of the Dutch Golden Age, and the microscope lenses for the father of microbiology, Anton von Leeuwenhoek. That was the day job. By night, he began work on his magnum opus, Ethics, a book of everything, metaphysics, religion, moral philosophy, and political philosophy, written in the style of a geometrical text. It is probably the, one of the most daring enterprises ever in the philosophy, I would say. It is an attempt to use that geometrical exposition in a way that has not been equaled, I think, by anybody else.
Ethics demonstrated in geometric order and divided into five parts. First part, on God. Definition 6. By God, I understand a being absolutely infinite, i.e. a substance consisting of an infinity of attributes of which each one expresses an eternal and infinite essence. What does he mean? A good question and a very difficult one. Susan James, Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck College, London. One of Spinoza's most, as it were, radical moves is to equate the notion of substance with both God and with nature. Spinoza, I think, is mainly attacking a sort of anthropomorphic conception of God. So he's saying, look, you tend to think about God as some sort of quasi-human being who creates the universe and then providentially rules over it and determines what should happen to us. But this idea is not really coherent, Spinoza wants to say. Better to think that, as it were, there is just nature. Nature has a certain kind of structure. And I'm going to call that structured whole that is nature also God. There's something spiritual about this. And it seems to me that he's dealing with something very abstract and trying to take it to the limits of language. Yes, I think that's absolutely true to the edge almost of what we can think and what we can understand. So there's a certain tension in Spinoza who thinks that everything is in principle intelligible, but not everything is in, in principle intelligible by us. <laughs> is that any help? <laughs> not much. <laughs> I looked confused. It's that term substance. When I think of substance, I think of how I use the word. Chewing gum is a substance that sticks to my shoe. That's not what Spinoza meant by substance. Substance is eternal, which is another way of saying that God is eternal. And we can understand in principle that there might be this sort of God's eye perspective where there was no difference between the present and the future, as it were. You just grasp the whole thing all at once. But of course, that's not our perspective. So we're, as it were, limited by this temporal perspective that uh, Spinoza describes as duration. Spinoza's concept that time is just a human mental construct, duration, anticipated modern physics by 250 years. But before Einstein's adoration of the philosopher's ideas came the excoriation of his own time. He was considered Satan's emissary on Earth. Professor Rebecca Goldstein. He tried to expel God from the two major grounds uh, for which God is, is often offered to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? His answer was, look, if we really understood nature, we could understand why it, it has to be. Nature explains itself. And how do we ground ethics there, too? He said, we have to understand human nature, and, and from that we'll be able to understand an objective ethics. And this was to expel transcendent, supernatural God from the foundations of thinking. No wonder he was considered Satan's emissary on Earth. The God Spinoza was trying to convince people to question was the God of biblical texts and blind church-directed obedience to them. He was an apostle for something different. Reason. Professor Susan James. 
Reasoning, Spinoza says, is a process that makes us more powerful. The geometrical method. You think, yeah. well, reasoning means mathematical reasoning. That we have, we have this very precise thing that's been worked out by Euclid thousands of years ago, and we can use this method to, in a sense, frame all of our thinking by just saying, organizing it in a mathematical kind of way. But you're saying that's not what what he means. The geometrical method is a rather, as it were, contorted and complex sort of philosophical ploy to show, as it were, how things follow from one another, how one thing produces another. The more we can live in the light of our understanding, the more rational we become. How do we do that? Well, that's where the politics really comes in, because the first thing we have to understand about ourselves, if we're rational, is that as individuals we have an insignificant amount of power. Spinoza is completely clear about that. And that we need to cooperate with other things and articulate ourselves to our environment in order to live more powerfully, make us more rational, and in Spinoza's view, also make us more free. Ethics, Book 4, Proposition 73. The man who is guided by reason is more free in a state where he lives under a system of law than in solitude where he lives by himself. Demonstration. The man who is guided by reason is not guided to obey out of fear. This is a crucial passage where Spinoza is laying about him and criticising many of his contemporaries. Uh, he's criticising Hobbes, first of all, who says, you know, the key to social life is fear. And he's entering, therefore, into a debate about how far people should be ruled by fear. And he's saying as little as possible. He's not saying fear has no place in politics. He's very pragmatic about politics. But he thinks of fear as a, a kind of depressing and disempowering emotion. Fear may be disempowering, but it is not always irrational. In a Europe where the clergy, Catholic and Protestant, invoked their special relationship with God and as interpreters of Scripture to censor new ideas and had the power of the state to impose harsh punishments, those who had new ideas had to tread very, very softly. It was only a few decades since Galileo had been threatened with torture and forced to recount his view that the earth moved around the sun. Spinoza had friends who had been tortured for free thinking. In the attic of the Rendsburg house, Piet Steenbacher showed me a letter Spinoza wrote to the mathematician and philosopher Gottfried von Leibniz. On it was the philosopher's seal, a rose, Espinoza means thorny in Spanish, and the Latin word cauta, or caution. One would expect that Spinoza meant something like be careful in what you do and what you say, so he's, he's very courageous on the one hand. On the other hand, he's not really trying to hurt or to provoke or offend people. And I think that's what a counter stands for. He'd seen enough of people getting in trouble in his environment. He was not out to provoke people or to make enemies. But neither was he willing to sort of be silent about what he really thought. I think that's the most important statement that respect the uh, Caution was perhaps the reason Spinoza wrote the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, or Theological-Political Treatise. Professor Rebecca Goldstein.
He broke off the writing of the ethics in order to publish the Tractatus and, you know, hoping to prove that such freedom as he avails himself of in the ethics is not antisocial, is not a threat to the state, but rather the very reason that the state is necessary to support such free inquiry. So Spinoza constructed his argument. The Bible is faulty, mutilated, adulterated, and inconsistent, and we possess it only in fragmentary form. And if the Bible, the authority claimed by the clergy for their influence in government, is faulty, then... How disastrous it is for both religion and state to grant to religious functionaries any right to issue decrees or concern themselves with state business. So what form should the state take if the clergy should not have a key role? I believe democracy to be the most natural form of government and the most consonant with individual liberty. In it, all men remain as they were in the state of nature, equals. This was the first time the word democracy was used in its modern sense. The ultimate aim of government is not to transform men from rational beings into beasts or puppets, but rather to enable them to develop their mental and physical faculties in safety, to use their reason without restraint, and to refrain the strife and vicious mutual abuse that is prompted by hatred, anger, or deceit. The true aim of government is freedom. That is pretty bold. The state exists to support the purpose of our lives, which is freedom of inquiry. The very subtitle of the Tractatus gives the whole story away, where it is shown that freedom to philosophize cannot only be granted without injury to piety and the peace of the commonwealth, but that the peace of the commonwealth and piety are endangered by the suppression of that freedom. That is Right there in the subtitle, what boldness, what audacity. In 1670, the year the Tractatus was published, declaring for freedom of speech and thought, challenging the clergy's role in the government was revolutionary. And a century later, it would inspire real political revolutions. But Spinoza's initial caution was also at work. The Tractatus was published anonymously and with a false imprint of publication, Hamburg. But... Everyone knew who wrote it and that it had been published in Amsterdam. It was only the second book the philosopher brought out, and it would be the last published in his lifetime. Storm clouds were gathering around the Dutch Republic. It is an ironclad rule of history that small countries that are rich will be preyed on by larger countries. England and France formed an alliance and went to war with the Netherlands in 1672. Internally, William of Orange and his Calvinist clergy friends put pressure on Johann de Witt. His brother Cornelius was arrested and tortured. Johann went to visit him in prison. A mob got into the jail and attacked the de Witts. They were disemboweled, their bodies torn apart, and the remains hung from a scaffold. By then, Spinoza was living in The Hague, close by the prison. Professor Piet Steenbachers. Leibniz records in a note that when he visited Spinoza in 1676, that Spinoza had told him about the murder of the De Witts, and he was so furious that he had wanted to go out and put up a sign against the killers of, of the De Witts, saying, Ultimi barbarorum, you most extreme barbarians. 
and his landlord locked the door and didn't want to let him out because he was sure that Spinoza was going to be killed as well. Now Spinoza had to work on ethics in secret. Like a Soviet-era dissident circulating Samizdat, he sent portions of the manuscript to his friends for their comments. In the end, Ethics was published a year after Spinoza's death. It worked out beyond all expectations that in the very reading of him and condemning of him, his ideas began to infiltrate and change the world. A century after his death, Voltaire, in his cynical way, wrote, Everybody talks about Spinoza, but nobody reads him. Goethe, in his full-hearted way, wrote, After looking around me in vain for a means of disciplining my peculiar nature, I chanced upon the ethics of this man. I found in him a sedative for my passions. He opened up a large and free outlook on the material and moral world. Seventy-five years later, novelist George Eliot reintroduced Spinoza to a Victorian audience by translating the major works, and now he's even becoming a figure in pop culture. In the pilot episode of Star Trek, Captain Kirk is seen reading ethics, and there were frequent references to the philosopher's work throughout the long run of that program. Professor Rebecca Goldstein understands the attraction. Spinoza is to me a philosopher of great hope. He places tremendous confidence in our powers of reason and that we can reach out to something universal and life-embracing and expansive uh, and see the common humanity in in all of us and and that reason is able to carry us very far. That's the spirit of hopefulness that many artists and writers and, and composers are attracted to. Music is the art form that brings us closest to Spinoza. Spinoza takes words to the edge of their meaning, but where the sound of words lose the ability to convey abstract ideas, music takes over. Today, Spinoza is a particular inspiration to people who make music. I'm born Amsterdammer, and uh, then it's very hard to escape the name of Spinoza. 85-year-old composer Theo Luvendi. I agree with him, you know. He makes the idea of God so abstract. It's a miracle, all these things in the universe. Theo Luvendi spent most of his life thinking of writing an opera about his fellow Amsterdammer. A lot of those years seem to have been spent here, in the Café Welling, behind Amsterdam's Concertgebouw Theater. The composer's dilemma? It was hard to figure out a way to dramatize the philosopher's story. Finally, at the age of 80, Luvendi figured out his angle. His life was, well, rather monotonous, with one exception, and that was 1656, when he was banished from the Jewish uh, community here in Amsterdam. That was extremely dramatic. I started with the idea that this rabbi was the enemy. But then, when I started to concentrate on the situation, I started to understand this rabbi more and more, because he said, and these are my words, but actually that I gave to the rabbi, you are a danger for our community. We have a safe heaven here in Holland. The opera starts with a meeting between the rabbi and Spinoza.
In the first aria of Lavendi's The Rise of Spinoza, the rabbi laments Spinoza's brilliance lost to the community. But focusing on Spinoza's expulsion created another dilemma for composer Lavendi. He is my hero, but at that time, he's left, when he left Amsterdam, at the end of the opera, he was a loser, in a sense, because he had to flee, more or less. I thought, my God, this is not a good end for an opera. And then I was thinking a lot about this. This was the biggest problem I had, and I solved it this way. The people of the Jewish community are singing and applauding to him and so on. So the end is very glorious, in a sense. Well, that's very imaginative. I have to say, my guess is that that's not what the people thought. My guess is the people thought, good riddance to bad rubbish. <laughs> performers hear connections between Spinoza's words and the music of modern composers. Emlyn Stamm of the New European Ensemble recently organized a program of Spinoza-inspired modern music. The idea was to find a, a combination, a kind of working combination of music and literature that would connect the atmosphere or the ideas of some of Spinoza's letters and some writings that were inspired by Spinoza with a particular kind of maybe reflective music. For example, Stamm selected a reading from Spinoza's first letter to the Royal Society's Henry Oldenburg. Friends must share all things, especially spiritual things. I shall begin then by speaking briefly about God, whom I define as a being consisting of infinite attributes, each of which is infinite or supremely perfect in its kind. The violist matched these words with a trio by Claude Debussy. Uh, it's one of Debussy's last pieces, and it's full of these little motives and little attributes, as it were, which create this incredible complexity of different atmospheres and short motives which follow each other but are so interwoven that it creates kind of an incredible sense of space and an incredible sense of a musical space in which reflection comes very naturally. But it starts with some very sparse notes. You know. Of all contemporary composers, it is Arvo Pärt that Stam thinks comes closest to a musical demonstration of one of Spinoza's key concepts. Pärt might be a wonderful example of extension. So with you, you get the melody, which is just... Uh...
It isn't just contemporary classical composers like Part whose work reflects Spinoza's profound attempt to understand and explain God. There's club DJ and composer Jason Hayward, a.k.a. Spinoza Gambit. I come from a pretty strict religious background. My religion was a, I guess you could call it, a Judeo-Christian sect called Worldwide Church of God. The group's idea of the divine was not to be questioned. When Hayward left the group, he moved to South Korea to make music, but also deal with his need for a new way to express his spirituality. Spinoza inspired me because I wasn't ready, I think, to let go of the idea of God that I had. It was sort of different than the idea that I was brought up with, but I came across Spinoza's idea of God as this universal substance. Um, to me, it seems strikingly modern and in keeping with a lot of new age ideas about God. I sort of looked to a lot of Spinoza's ideas to sort of shed this religious burden I had, I think, and so that's why he became one of my heroes. Apart from his ideas, I was inspired by the fact that he would be so vocal about his beliefs, <laughs> his work in this, his environment, which I would imagine, you know, at the time would have been very conservative. I think that's an inspiring thing to go out into the world and say, "Here's what I believe," and even if you're going, if you know you're going to face pretty harsh criticism, that's that takes a lot of courage. Like I said, I didn't go through that in terms of my religion, but I think, you know, as artists, we do that all the time. You have to have that courage to put yourself out there as an artist, no matter how you think you're going to be received. And, and that was something that also was inspiring in Spinoza's story. Such an inspiring man. Yet there is no place where a devotee can make a pilgrimage to honor Spinoza. He left very little except the work behind he died at the age of 44, a year after completing ethics. The cause of death may have been years of inhaling silicates while grinding lenses. There isn't even a grave where you can leave a thorny rose, or, in the Jewish tradition, a stone. Professor Pete Steenbachers told me the excommunicated Jew who reimagined God was buried, surprisingly, at a church in The Hague. As a non-believer, he would not have been permitted to be buried there anyway, but apparently they, in, in 1677, the church didn't mind. I mean, he had, he had lots of friends. You rent a grave, and if your family no longer pays for the rent, then the body is removed, and the bones are collected for, all, for a number of people and then spread out outside the church on the cemetery. So he's, Spinoza is still buried in The Hague, but in bits and pieces. No so, bones to venerate. No, no, that's right. No, that's uh, no relics. No, so that's that, perhaps that's that's even a good thing. Otherwise, it would become sort of uh, a cult of, of saints, which is not exactly in keeping with what Spinoza would have uh, wanted. Are you convinced yet that Spinoza is a philosopher for our time? In the West, we argue about God's existence constantly. Spinoza, at enormous risk, raised the question and offered an answer. Albert Einstein embraced it. I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world, not in a God who concerns himself with the fate and doings of mankind. We worry about the destruction humanity is wreaking on nature, 
Birkbeck professor Susan James says Spinoza was thinking about this in the abstract three and a half centuries ago. Environmentalism, because for Spinoza we're just, you know, tiny, tiny fragments of this much larger thing, nature. And in order to empower ourselves, we have to pay attention to what it can do to us and what we can do to it. And in order to empower ourselves in the way that Spinoza thinks, which is to say to make ourselves able to sustain our unempowering and satisfying mode of existence, we need to be aware of our vulnerabilities to nature. I think Spinoza thinks that you're only fully and finally free when you learn to live in accordance with nature. Finally, these are fearful times. A historical era is coming to an end, but there is no clear view of what comes next, rather like the times in which Spinoza lived. Politicians use fear to gain office. The irrational shapes too much public discourse. But Spinoza reminds us that our ability to think clearly can help us past our dilemmas. In Ethics, the philosopher points out a path away from encroaching darkness. The person who is guided by reason is not guided to obey out of fear. This is still a very radical idea. I just become suffused with the, with again the optimism that Spinoza somehow is able to dig out from himself in his loneliness, in his excommunication, to the extent that we try to reason together, try to put our grounds before each other, allowing for critical comments and you know, critical reason. Uh, to the extent that we do that, we can make progress together. I do believe that the spirit of Spinoza is relevant to today. It's one of the most hopeful things that I can hold out. And finally, Spinoza, God intoxicated, calls on us to stand fast for reason and truth, the path to liberty. He that knows himself upright does not fear the death of a criminal and shrinks from no punishment. He holds that death in a good cause is an honor and that death for freedom is glory. <laughs>